The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. been with us or you're a visitor, I've been pursuing a topical series of messages about the most fundamental subject, who is Jesus Christ. Beginning in November, we looked at him as co-creator with the Father. We looked at him as God's king installed on his holy hill in Psalm 2. We looked at him God in flesh. We've looked at him virgin born. You might think that it's as if we've been driving together down a road and flashing past billboards that announce key events and key texts from the life and ministry of Christ. Today, if you see where we are in Mark chapter 15, we're at the cross. And next week, believe it or not, Easter will come early because we'll be at the resurrection. As we continue looking at these things that define, scenes that define the person and work of Jesus Christ. I have about five more to offer you. Today I'm coming in the middle of the events of the crucifixion, just as the soldiers had been mocking Jesus and striking him and spitting on him. I pick up at Mark 15, verse 20. Follow along in your Bible with this solemn scene of the death of Jesus. When the soldiers had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. He was the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself! Come down from the cross! So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. 
Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Our Father, this is sacred ground. Help us to hear what you want us to hear and learn what you want us to learn of this solemn event. May Christ be glorified. Amen. It was at a Good Friday service, I remember specifically, a long time ago, 1975. I was in my second year of pastoral ministry in a small western Pennsylvania town north of Pittsburgh, and I was participating in a community ecumenical service as one of seven ministers who each spoke briefly on one of these seven classic last words of Christ. It's interesting that I don't even remember which of the words I spoke on that day, but I do vividly remember the speaking of one man, a young contemporary about my own age, who I'd only known for a short time. He was assigned the words of Jesus in Mark 15 that I consider the central drama words of the cross. In fact, you may note that in Mark, this is the only word from the cross that he recounted. The other Gospels give different words that Jesus also spoke, and we believe they're all speaking correctly. But Mark wanted to emphasize this one word, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it is the only one that he includes in his account. Well, my young friend, who is about the same time in the ministry as myself, spoke something that day that made it difficult for me. I almost really, truly wanted to rise up on my feet and shout my objection. I think my wife probably restrained me as she does in such situations. I didn't shout my objections, but the man said something that was so heinous, I could not hardly believe that he came from a Christian seminary and was speaking from the same Bible I was. His almost exact words were these, We have to understand here, he said, Jesus was under the most extreme of physical and mortal distress. Pain and delirium clouded all his senses. He was out of touch with reality. Of course, God the Father had not abandoned his son. That simply could not happen. It only seemed that way to Jesus in his death row. Can you understand why I wanted to shout and could hardly contain my, no, you are so wrong. You have just thrown the biblical gospel out the window. Because God's atonement was being accomplished at that cross as Jesus became sin for us. And in that hour, if we would understand all of Scripture correctly, the Holy Father could not even look upon his son, let alone respond to him or comfort him as he died in our place, full of sin, mine, yours, 
making him a despicable sight that the father could only turn away from. I restrained myself that day and didn't disrupt the service, but I gained an unforgettable lesson about participating in ecumenical services where I couldn't even know for sure where others were coming from with their biblical understanding. If we're correct that the cross of Jesus was the pinnacle hour in his life, then these words, I believe, this word from the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me, is the premier word of the premier hour when he was dealing with sin once and for all. And Jesus certainly was not mistaken. He was forsaken. He had to be. For here we are confronting a vast, mysterious miracle that is at the foundation and the core of God's work to dispense with our sin and forgive it. As a first point today, I want you to see in here that God the Father was indeed turning his back and his comfort upon his son. There was a rupture in the closest personal relationship that had ever existed. I don't remember what day it was, but it was, I think, Tuesday this past week. I was driving in my car and had a radio call-in program on, which I heard part of on my way home. And a psychologist apparently was talking with people that were calling in, and the subject was disruptions within family relationships and how difficult it was, and as many callers described, uh, that they had some kind of a broken relationship with a mother or a father or a sister or someone. And the point was how common this is in American society. You don't have to go out and have many conversations with people you would know if, and maybe you yourself can tell of a fractured relationship within family bounds where there should be love and understanding and patience and helping one another. There is only silence and anger and disruptive thinking and talking. Last week we heard a news story, tragically, about a murder-suicide in our Lancaster community in which a mother shot her 11-year-old son and then herself. And apparently the aftermath of the story is that on that very day that this murder-suicide occurred, the boy was going to be in, legally become in the custody of his father. And the mother would rather have him dead than have him in that custody. Can you imagine the horror within that family? As I've unfolded this series of messages about Christ for you and about seven or, I guess, seven previous Sundays, the deity of Jesus Christ has been a prominent thread of what I've talked about. Christ as co-creator at the Father's side. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Christ as King of the universe. Christ as virgin-born. Christ as truly God and truly man in one person. He became a real man, but he never lost his deity. And you think of the awesome relationship between father and son. We didn't go to the baptism of Christ, but you remember there how an amazing thing was reported that people saw Jesus in the river Jordan being baptized, and they heard a voice saying, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And we put alongside that the thing that Jesus himself 
said, I and the Father are one. I am the one who reveals the Father. Hebrews 1.3 contributes the sentence, He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. Jesus said in Matthew 11, No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Think of the intimacy He was talking about. A divine Father and a divine Son bound in one reality with each other. An ancient theologian named Athanasius said on the subject, Christ, the Son, is the Father's all in all. A modern theologian from Scotland, T.F. Torrance, wrote, Jesus Christ is the open heart of God, the very love and life of God, poured out to redeem humankind. The hands and heart of God and of Jesus are the same, Mr. Torrance said. So with all that, and so many other texts we could go to of similar telling us of the relation of the Father and Son is in oneness and in understanding and in love. How could that fundamental relationship of God the Father and God the Son, existing in absolute solidarity from before all time, ever become a house divided against itself? How? If ever there was a divide between these two, wouldn't that be the ultimate disaster? I was getting ready to leave the house this morning when I grabbed the Sunday paper from the porch and just took it out of the plastic bag and looked at the front page. And if you get it, you can look at it yourself. There's a very large word headline, one word headline, why? And it asks the question of murders in our community, our county, for recent years where we know who did it, we know who died, but we don't know why. And here's the question, coming from God the Son to God the Father. Why? And it wasn't answered. Now as a second point, I want you to look at Mark 15:33 and find there that Christ ventured alone into a dark abyss where the sin of every believer from all time brought divine wrath down upon him. And the miracle in the physical world that was seen there and described is a miracle of darkness at midday. And I would contend with you that if you consult all the best biblical commentators, some of them will try to explain this darkness. Oh, maybe it was an eclipse. Well, eclipses last only minutes. They don't last hours. Maybe it was some kind of a strange Middle Eastern dust storm where just the, the, the dust clouds were driven by wind and were so thick that no one could see. Well, that stretches the imagination more than a bit. I would go with those who say, look, the only explanation we need is that this was supernatural dark. This was a work of God. And it relates, we think, to Exodus chapter 10 where we're told that God made darkness, a darkness, by the way, that Moses wrote there, could be felt. Darkness was the ninth plague against Egypt. Darkness that covered the land and obscured everything before the firstborn of every household was found to be dead. In Amos, the minor prophet Amos 8, 9 and following, the Lord predicted that a day would come, a day of judgment like no other that ever was. It would come, Amos said, 
the sun would go down at noon and it would seem to be like morning for an only sun. That's what this was. Darkness that could be felt. Darkness from God that was symbolic of one thing, divine judgment. On his cross, you see, Jesus was acting the part of the high priest of Israel, going to God to atone for the sins of the people. But instead of taking the blood of a lamb killed in a prescribed way that the law had said should be done, the high priest in this case was also the sacrifice. When we say the Apostles' Creed, we say he descended into hell. Most of you probably don't realize that that phrase was not in the earliest version of the Apostles' Creed, and it is a phrase that sometimes arouses misunderstanding. I hold with those who say Jesus descended into hell in his suffering on the cross. He was in hell, in that darkness, rejected by his Father. Habakkuk chapter 1 says God's eyes are too pure to look upon sin. How could the eternal, holy, and righteous God look upon the sight of his Son made into the universal sin-bearer. He could not. That was something, you know, there's not much we could say God could not do. God could not do that if his Son was going to carry out the plan that Father and Son had agreed upon. To be utterly forsaken by your father or mother has to be a terrible thing. Maybe some of you know something about this personally. One of the most precious promises the Bible makes is that God our Savior will not leave us or forsake us. That's why we love some of the Psalms where the doctrine that is stressed is God's presence. Isn't that why we love the 23rd Psalm? It's really a very simple Psalm. The highest theology it contains is God is with us. I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and staff comfort me. You're there, God. Psalm 30, or 27 is also David writing. And he said in that psalm, Hide not your face from me. Do not reject me, O God. In Psalm 51, the plea is, Cast me not away from your presence. Be with me. I can do almost anything, God, if you are with me. Well, if the notion of God being with us and not turning away from us is a great thing to us. Try to imagine the sense of being forsaken and what it was for the sinless soul of Jesus when his father looked in his direction but looked away because Jesus at that moment was the personification of the most repugnant representative criminal in all the world. We can explain it here, at least theologically, if not emotionally, when we go to a place like Isaiah 59, where it reminds us that our sins separate us, to quote Isaiah, separate us from the Lord our God. Our sins cause God to hide his face. 2 Corinthians 5.21 teaches God made him, Christ, who had no sin, to be sin, be the personification of sin 
in order that we might be made the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13 says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Why? How did he do that? By becoming the curse for us. No wonder. I don't have, you know, the right intonations of voice or expression to say to you this question of Jesus from that cross and what it meant in light of who he was and who he was speaking to when he said, Father, why have you forsaken me? We who had the greatest relationship that could ever even be imagined, why have you turned from me? Well, Jesus knew the answer. He knew what he was doing. He wasn't ignorant. And he knew that silence would be all he would hear. But he asked that question and he hung there. And I think we as human beings must be stupefied with amazement that he stayed there. He had the power to leave that cross. By the way, you heard the people saying, come down, come down. He had the power to come down. Of course he did. Nails didn't hold him. But he didn't come down. And he endured what Martin Luther, Luther was always bold in the way he said things. And I don't think I would have titled my sermon what I did if it hadn't been that Luther gave me this phrase. Luther said this moment was God forsaken by God. The entire transaction unfolding there is full of the deepest mystery. It is our God. He is a mysterious being after all. Well, in the third place, we draw a few conclusions and applications here from this death cry of Jesus in Mark 15. One truth, I think, dominates, and that is that Christ endured estrangement from his Father so that outcasts like you and I can be received into the divine family. There's another miraculous physical event, by the way, noted here in Mark. First was the darkness, supernatural darkness, but second was the phenomenon of the heavy curtain in the inner court of the temple. This was a high curtain, if you would imagine, maybe a a 20-foot, I don't know how high the curtain is in Fulton Opera Theater stage, but it's heavy, woven. It's described how it should be made. Moses was given from God the exact directions, or the other later on, uh, David and Solomon were given the directions of how to make that curtain hanging before the inner sanctum of the temple, the place where only the high priest went and only once a year and only with a sacrifice of blood for the people. It was a barrier that might as well have been a concrete block wall for all that people took liberty to pass it. They didn't touch it. They wouldn't go near it. They would have been sure that they would have died if they even tried. But here we have a description When Jesus died, that curtain was torn. And the scripture is important even in its details. It was torn not from the bottom where a man could reach it with a knife. It was torn from the top down. And when that curtain was torn, another miracle happened. It happened out at Calvary. As a Gentile, Roman, hardened man of war who was not a Jew, not an Israelite, not a student of the Scripture, unexpectedly said, surely this man was the Son of God. Now all these manifestations tell me the deepest miracle 
behind them all and, and, you know, in the inner place there was a miracle of spiritual power as God was throwing open, wide open, the front door of heaven. And guess who we're told the first person was who walked through? Someone from the Jewish Sanhedrin? A, a Bible scholar? Somebody who had been looking for the Messiah? No, they stood there scoffing. Who walked through that wide open door and that wide open curtain, symbolically speaking? A Roman executioner, a Gentile, who those Bible scholars standing there would have despised if they had any opinion about him at all. The priestly rituals of the Old Testament were being smashed there forever because the death of Jesus meant he was drinking to the full the cup of the Father's wrath as the prophets described it, and he drank it all the way down right to its dregs. And in God's plan, the payment was offered, the ransom payment for your sin and mine. If we would pinpoint the moment of Jesus' time on earth that he accomplished redemption, this is it. This moment when the Father turned away and the Son shouted and died, and the temple curtain was torn, redemption for you was accomplished. And indeed, there was a reason I asked Pastor Light to read Hebrews 4.16 as our assurance this morning. Let us, what, run away? Be afraid that God can't look on us? No. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may find grace to help us in our great need. There's people here who've had disruptions, not of their own desire or causing in their family in recent time. There are people who have died or have had a spouse die, a husband or wife of 40 or 50 or 60 years. I can't imagine. It's soon only months away that my wife and I will be together 50 years. I can't speak about this because I can't imagine being denied her companionship and her love. But some of you have gone through that. Some of you are single and you've anguished. Why am I single? Why have I not found a life companion? And that doesn't mean it's bad to be single, but there are people who don't want to be single and yet it continues for them. There are people who maybe have done excellent work somehow at a corporation or a business and some co-worker that you thought was a friend found a way to make your good work look like his. And that caused a rupture in a friendship. When we see Jesus separated from the most intimate fellowship of anyone he had in the universe, his father, it tells us that he now is alone. He knows what it is to be utterly alone. And he came to correct that aloneness in us. I'm not particularly a student of poetry, but I became aware of lines from a 19th century poet some years ago. I believe Elizabeth Barrett Browning was a Christian. She penned these several lines to comment on this very event, the death of Christ in Mark 15. Here's what she said. Once Emmanuel's orphaned cry 
His universe had shaken. It went up single and echoless. My God, I am forsaken. She wrote, it went up from those holy lips amid this lost creation. And thus no child of faith need use those words of desolation. She was saying, he was alone, so you don't ever need to be. And in fact, if you belong to him, you cannot be entirely alone. God's presence and his goodness are yours, even when you don't feel it's true. Lastly, this. Realize, please, that when Jesus hung on that cross, skeptics and observers, people who had no relationship to the situation at all, they were just passers-by. Isn't it cruel to realize that there are people who have no idea who that man on the cross was, but they love to malign him and mock him? And it says they, they joined the priests in shouting out, Oh, you who would destroy the temple, show us that you're the Messiah. Come down. Do a miracle. Come down, they said. Folks, I'm here to tell you that the real miracle of that day was that Jesus willed himself to stay up. He would not come down. That was the miracle. He knew that to come down was to destroy the plan of God, to stay up in the dark, all alone, without his Father, was the plan of God for our salvation. And because he died all alone, facing the worst hellish horror that our minds can imagine, we cannot imagine, you and I are able now to drive a stake in the ground and claim the solemn promise of Jesus when he told us things like this. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you always to the close of the age. That was the miracle. He accomplished it. Thanks be to God. Father, we're amazed when we try to probe what happened on that cross. We're amazed that you planned it. We're amazed that you, by your almighty power, were able to turn away and had to turn away because your son resembled us too much. Thank you for the steadfastness and obedience of Jesus Christ, alone, in the dark, friendless and mocked. Thank you. And we say, hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen.